Welcome to the Sum of It All Faster Isn't Smarter podcast. I'm Audrey Medeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we are exploring Faster Isn't Smarter by Kathy Seeley. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes of your favorite platform. Today, we're kicking off the theme, Rethinking Our Practices with Messages 18, 36, and 37. Great, Audrey. Just looking forward to getting into this conversation. And look at message 18. It's, it's the title of the book, right? Faster isn't smarter. And, and each time we've logged off um, from our episodes, I've been ending with that, that very interesting phrase. And in parentheses for this episode or in this, in this message, the trouble with time tests. Um, so Audrey, I'm sure we'll have a lively conversation here as we get into this topic. Um, just a little background, if you're reading along with us and you need a reminder, if you're not reading along, uh, Kathy does a really nice job thoughtfully addressing the limitations of time tests. And uh, in, in, the, in the message itself, she describes this account in a classroom um, that she observed of a particular student. And Audrey, I have to tell you, as I was reading that, it was actually painful for me to read mm. parts of the account. Um, there was a, the boy that was the, the subject of this account. Um, she was watching him take this time test and she could, she could tell, she could see the visible anxiety that he was experiencing. And just watching him and hearing about him turning in an unfinished paper. I was, I was, that was just sitting with me as I, as I was listening to the account. And then the teacher took the time to, to grade the test in for, front of the students and then read out loud the students that had made the particular um, desired outcome. And then the placement to a remedial group, um, all those things and many of which I've done in my career at one time or another. So you know, cer certainly something to, to reflect in that regard, but, and not to pass judgment on, on where we are at any given time, but, but really Audrey still to consider like how we might feel being in the shoes of that student and really just grappling with why we give time tests and is there a better way to do it and, and really getting into all that, Audrey. I think it's a great point. You know, it was painful to watch it it was equally painful for me this last week when my second grader um, has sprints to do at home for her math. And what's interesting when we get to talking about these time tests is that people often say, well, like, it's not against the clock, it's against themselves, right? And we make up these things. That, and I bought into that for a while. I'm like, that's not bad. Like, just do it to get better yourself, right? Um, and so my daughter, the first week of school, she was in for that. You know, she was like, I'm just sprinting to see what I could do, you know? And her shoulders would get tense and she wouldn't, she would tense up a little bit. And I would say, you know, you got this, just do what you can. And she would relax and do some problems. Um, but then they started having it happen where she had to do two rounds and they wanted to like the scores on the computer kept and said, can you do better than your first round? And I watched her this last week on the second round, put in wrong answers for wow. every single problem. Like she just was like typing away, you know, oh, random wow. number generator on her fingers. Wow. And um, I was like, what, what are you doing, sweetie? And I'm like, you're going to have to go back and fix them at the end. She goes, right. well, I know, but I'd rather, you know, get more done. And 
totally missing the point that like done was supposed to be correct. Like she just thought I'm supposed to do more. And so as soon as the timer went off, the computer prompted her to then correct each of the responses, which she did without any tools, without any extra, like she knew the answers. And I just, I, I sat there and I thought, what is wrong with the system when like, is it valuable at all? Do we get any good data from that? Will her teacher know what happened there? I mean, what are we doing? Yeah, it's a really good question, Audrey. You know, it's, I'm, I'd like to pull back even just a little bit further from hearing your example, Audrey, and you, what you're really referring to is kind of like, what is our goal in assessment in general? Like specifically, of course, with time tests, but like, what's our goal in general with assessment? And I think that a lot of our goal is to find out how our students are thinking so that we can support them in their journey of continuous improvement. I mean, we want to know how they're thinking. And you know what it's what your example and the example from the book are making me think about is time tests are actually working against us in this regard. You gave such a perfect example. Your daughter was able to type in the correct answers um, when she needed to, when she wasn't in this, this pressure cooker situation. And so it makes me think of ensuring a safe environment for each and every student. And so that we, what we get is accurate results and, and allows us to have enough information so that we can do something with that information and support our students. Um, and I'd just like to make a connection to universal design for learning, Audrey, because you know, when we think of that principle of engagement, a lot of it has to do with reducing fear. And, and I just think that that's part of what we're talking about here. I think that's a great point, Mark. Um, you know, the quote that sticks out for me from this message was when Kathy says, overemphasizing fast fact recall at the expense of problem solving and conceptual experiences gives students a distorted idea of the nature of mathematics and their ability to do mathematics. And I think alongside with the fear that you're talking about is that if we don't give them an experience that says, this isn't what math is, math is playful and enjoyable and beautiful, um, that they not only feel like associating math with fear, but they start associating math with this you know, really procedural, computational, um, quick thinking, course. Um, and so what's interesting is like my, my second grader who I was telling that story about, she literally finished her sprints mark and she asked if she could play Mancala, which is a beautiful bead counting game. She used counting and patterning to do all of this advanced thinking about which set of beads she was going to move. And she completely crushed me in the game very quickly. <laughs> and I just thought it was interesting that that's not math to her. Math to her is what she was doing on the computer. Yeah. And it wasn't the patterning and the beauty and the fun that we were doing afterwards. She was doing that to relax. And so we've already twisted it, right? And I have to untwist right. it and say like, no, no, no. What you were just doing there was the beautiful part of math that I want you to see every day and engage in. Um, and so when we think about like, why are we getting our kids to do stuff fast? I'm really curious, like as an elementary teacher, as someone who's like had way more experience in time <laughs> tests than I have had, um, is a student's being fast really for them? Is it for the teacher? Like, what's the point? Such a great question, Audrey, and probably too much answer in a 20 minute podcast. But um, I will give a couple of thoughts around this because yes, I've spent many, many hours in conversations around this topic. And, you know, what's really interesting, Audrey, about your question is when, when as elementary folk, when we sort of say, this is why we need this, oftentimes it's so they can, they being students can be more ready to do 
more level low level work quickly (laughs) so in other words like they need to know their multiplication facts really really fast because they're going to do two digit multiplication and i don't want to sit there and wait for them to do all this low level you know multiplication that they'll have to do within the two digit multiplication problem Mm. so what's fascinating is earlier audrey you talked about this idea of problem solving and this idea of sort of distorting things for students um, rather than preparing them with the problem solving and i think I think what's so interesting about, you know, what I just mentioned is the fact that, you know, if, if we're just emphasizing low level stuff so they can have a pathway to do more low level stuff, um, I think we really need to pause and think about that. Yeah, it sure sounds like we do. So what in your experience have you used instead of time tests? Is there something that works to kind of still get at that same point? Well, I think there's been a lot of different things that people have tried and, I, and, I, and I've uh, noticed a lot. In fact, recently, there's been more things that people have put out there in, in terms of trying to encourage thoughtfulness around this as, as other ways to um, have students become fluent around multiplication without sort of this idea that it has to be this low level, one way to do it with flashcards and, and that's it. And I was really frustrated by this as a fifth grade teacher. And what I really had to stop and think about is what did I want to know about my students? Because a time test didn't give me the accurate information for all the reasons we've already shared here today. And so what I realized was I wanted to know, were they counting one by one to find a multiplication fact? Did they have it memorized? Were they using an inefficient strategy? Were they using an efficient strategy? And so one of the things I came up with was to have a non-timed quiz where they would first put the facts that they had memorized. They would write those products. And then from there, they would go ahead and show me what strategy they were using for their other facts. And I narrowed to the 15 most problematic facts. And and I'm not saying all these these suggestions are the ones that everybody should just rush out and do. But you know what I, I felt like, Audrey, more than anything in what I ended up doing is I stopped and said, what do I want to know about my students? Because it, I, I, would just, I would just share with our audience that I don't believe a time test is going to give you that information. So I wanted to eliminate some of the, the certainly eliminate the fear and, and allow the students to show me what is going on inside their head when they see a fact. And I don't know if it was perfect. I know it wasn't. But I, I do know that I found out about my students. And I was able to meet with students and talk to them about strategies and so forth more in a just just in time um, method. So Audrey, that's one idea and something that I throw out there for our listeners. I think that's a great suggestion and something to start with. And and as we think about that, you know, everyone um, is in a different place in which speed has an influence in their classroom or not. And so I think it's a great opportunity just to consider um, where does speed come into play in your classroom and how do you how do you consider that thoughtfully about um, what that's doing to students and to yourselves about thinking about what math really is is about. Um, so I'd like to switch gears just a little bit. Relatedly, but um, different, is this message 36 around, I know what an 82 means. And I thought, um, what a funny title, because I was like, what does an 82 mean? And then I read the section, and this is all about grading and what a hot topic for right now. 
Oh, sure. Um, this is on the thoughts of so many people's minds, especially as people came out and said, like, why are so many of our students failing or getting D's? Mm. Or why are so many of our feeling, students not being successful? Um, and really examining their grading practices. And I think that at the crux of it is like this belief that our grading is really objective. And like, we have to finally get to the place and Kathy talks about it a little bit of like right. realizing like you and your neighbor or you and the colleague across the hall, like you could look at the exact same piece of artifact from a student and give it vastly different grades, um, that it's not a scientific endeavor. And I think that's just something that we need to just stop for a moment and consider before moving on in our grading conversation. Oh, I think that's so fascinating, Audrey. And, you know, I have to think back to my years in the classroom. And I think that, I think the reason I didn't think of what you just said is because I said to myself, I am a fair person. I am doing things in a fair way. And I think that, I think that I can believe that, but that doesn't mean somebody else is doing something next door to me saying to themselves, I'm a fair person. I'm doing things in a fair way. And until we sort of have this crosswalk of seeing, like, are we saying the same thing in feedback to students, then we won't know. In fact, in the book, did you notice that, um, Audrey, that she has this example of where a bunch of teachers were given the same paper to grade. And it was amazing. Did you see the range was from 25 to 85 in, in, the, in the grade that a teacher would assign that particular um, for that paper? I, I was stunned. Yeah, it's so interesting to think through like that consistency there is really a myth. Like it is it is not something you can bank on. Um, and so having some conversations around like, why, why do we grade? Um, what are some productive beliefs and maybe some unproductive beliefs around that? Instead of going right straight to the good or bad, I always love what the NCTM um, work has done in recent years about just talking about what are productive beliefs there? What are something that could be helpful with how we grade? And yeah. what are some unproductive beliefs, some things that are really um, starting to mess up the thinking behind this, right? Um, and so I appreciate what Kathy says about that one of the productive beliefs might be that we need to consider grading practices should be contributing to students' improved learning. Like it, if it's not actually helping students' learning, then maybe we have the wrong view of grading. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I mean, and she says it just straight out. The only reason to assign grades should be to improve student learning. Um, just as you said, I, I just think that is really important to consider because what you're making me do, Audrey, is you're making me think about like, how did I use grades throughout my time in the classroom? And boy, I mean, I'm just going to be real transparent. I can think of a lot of times that my motivation for the grade to give the grade was to, as to some sort of just accountability measure. Like I want to change a child's behavior. So I, I think that this low grade, I, I don't think I thought through it this, this, this completely, but, but the idea of a grade kicking a kid back on track, right? Um, and I don't know, that's, that's just really, really uh, heavy to reflect on, Audrey, I, I have to say. Yeah, it is. It is it's, it's scary to think about the fact that we think by the time they get to secondary that students are motivated by points. But the problem is, is that we've created that false system. So we've mm. created a false system saying, if you do this, I'm going to give you some points and that that's what really matters instead of the learning, right? So then kids walk out of the door with 
do I have enough points or not? Did that matter to me or not? Am I okay with fewer points? And it's not about the learning and it's not about their improved learning experience. So I think, you know, there's, there's work to be done there for each and every one of us to consider. It's not, it's not easy work. Um, both Peter Liljedahl and Jennifer Gonzalez have talked about rubrics and how you consider grading on rubrics and um, how that might help with some of these issues. Um, but it's, it's not something that just is, is easy to just say, okay, you got it. I'm going to be a fair grader now. Like it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to work out right for my kids this, this time. Right. I, so well put Audrey. You know, you mentioned a couple people. I, I recently was in a book club around Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity. Uh, I recommend that book. And, you know, one of the things that I should have realized a long time ago, which I, I it just did not dawn on me, um, was this idea that we have this 100 point grading system and 60 points in that scale, perhaps even 70, depending on how you think about it, represent failure. And when Joe brings that out in his book, I just was like, why didn't I notice that before? I like, we have this sliver of, of, of points that are representing success. And I think, Audrey, it just goes back to so many things that we've inherited in our educational system that we're afraid to touch because we're not sure what will happen because, you know, we don't know what the, what's, what the next thing is going to be that's going to replace it. So, but that doesn't mean we, do, we shouldn't look at it and see what the inequities are and start to call them out. We don't have to change it overnight, but we do need to call it out. Like something like that, that needs to be called out. I agree with you, Mark. And, you know, there's opportunity there to have conversations around assessments in regards to that and pushing back on, on those ideas around like, what is it we're assessing? How do we know if students know it? Um, and how do we communicate that with students and their families? Yeah, for sure. You know, all this is bringing me back to episode two of this season, Audrey, when we remember we were talking about broadening our definition of mathematics. And so with that, it's just so interesting that, that what we're talking about really is around that. And what I mean by that is when we broaden our definition of mathematics, our practices change or can possibly change as a result of that. But it also works the other way around. As we change our practices, it can change our beliefs. So I think grading is just one of those things, right? That we think about what are our beliefs around grading? What, it, what is it meant for? And then what are our practices around that? And just trying to see how our beliefs might push our practice or our practices might push our beliefs. I think that's a great point, Mark. Um, as we consider the last message for this episode, mm -hmm. yeah, boring, what stuck out to you? <laughs> well, great title. Yeah. <laughs> boring exclamation point. Um, and, but as, as Kathy is able to do, wonderful parenthetical, is keeping students interested a teacher's job. Um, and you know what I started thinking about with this message, Audrey, is this idea of where does the student responsibility piece end and the teacher's responsibility to what I will call creating innovation in their classroom. Um, because I, I think that uh, it, there seems to be, I've been in many discussions where this is battle of sort of like, well, the students need to come more ready to engage, and that's the problem, or is it because the teacher is sage on the stage lecturing? So I, I really think it would be really interesting to continue to unpack, like, where's that sweet spot? 
so that we have responsibility for our students. But as educators, we take responsibility for needing a level of in innovation that is going to break them out of uh, the state of boredom, right? <laughs> I think that's a great point, Mark. I think, um, I think figuring out whose job it is, it's not one or the other, it's a combination. And so instead of pointing fingers and saying, hmm. students aren't motivated enough to learn this or the teacher isn't qualified to make this interesting, like we have to look at this as it's a, it's a joint effort, right? This is something we're working on together in this way. Um, and that math is inherently engaging and curious and playful and relevant. Um, and what we have to do sometimes is undo the things we've been handed um, systemically for a long time, historically for a long time, that this is what math is in school. We have to change that and say, that's actually not math. Like, here's the math we're talking about, um, which is playful and curious and relevant to students. Yeah, great point. It's, it's like, uh, I, I often wonder if it's sort of just like this case of bad advertising. <laughs> mm -hmm. School math isn't really the math that you're going to go on to do. So. Uh, you know, in, in, in message 37, there's actually a quote um, that Kathy uses by Clay Bedford, who was an industrialist, and he says, you can teach a student a lesson for a day, but if you can teach him to learn by creating curiosity, he will continue the learning process as long as he lives. And I just think that um, a lot of what you were just talking about reminds me of that quote, this idea of you know, Kathy puts in her in her book, she says, boredom's partner is motivation. And, you know, just this idea of creating curiosity. And if our job can be to create curiosity in mathematics, um, what that could lead to. I think that's a great point, Mark. I'm reading another book called Play by Stuart Brown. And he says in there that when play is denied over a long term, our mood darkens and we lose sense of optimism and become incapable of feeling pleasure. And what I wonder sometimes is like, as a teacher, has our mood darkened in math because we haven't found math playful for a while? And if mm. so, like, how do we re-engage ourselves in the playfulness of it? And if it's darkened for our students, like how do we re-engage our students in the playfulness of math? And this isn't like you said, um, pulling into the teachers, like let's do a Jeopardy today in class. Like it's really about looking at the inherent beauty, curiosity, creativity of math, right? Um, and maybe thinking about ways that we pull back on some of the things that we think are school math and we really engage in some mathematical discoveries together. Um, so I'm curious, you know, maybe that's a place to start, but when's the last time you thought math was playful and how do you bring that playfulness back into your math world? Wow, that was just really great, Audrey. I, I really like how you put that together. You know, what I'm walking away with here today with this episode, I'm thinking of the word play. I'm looking how that activates curiosity. Like, isn't it, wouldn't it be just cool to just think about those two words and sort of like, as I plan lessons, like where are those two words gonna live in my lessons? So uh, excited about that, Audrey, um, really cool. Folks, uh, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about growing together with messages 26, 28, and 39. You can grab the full schedule by visiting www.sdcoe.net slash math and clicking on the podcast page. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on your professional learning journey. Remember, faster isn't smarter. <laughs>